You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. This is our The God You Long For teaching series. And the God you long for is wise, is what we're looking at this morning. Any women here without their husbands? They're up on the mountain? Okay. You happy? Happy they're gone? Okay. One. Rest of you are just pretending that you're not. You're sad. But uh, were you looking for your husband on the video? Uh, He didn't go to the retreat. He just told you that (laughs) we will offer you counseling to work through that. That would, would be bad, wouldn't it? I probably shouldn't pretend like that. That's not good. We've got a great study here this morning, and uh, I'm excited you're here today. We've been doing theology here at Desert Breeze. Of course, every weekend we do theology, but we've been really focusing in on the attributes of God. Why is that? Because all of our problems are rooted in, in either our not knowing God or at the moment we have forgotten who God is, all of our problems. And so we've been looking at the attributes, the nature, the character of God. It makes all the difference in the world as it relates to our lives and how we deal with the issues of life. And I want to start off with a question, and then I'm going to give you a, share with you a story that's going to be a gut punch. And, uh, and then I'm going to end the message with a gut punch. It's, it's going to hurt a little bit, so it's one of those topics that we need to deal with. It's an important one. And... Uh, Here's my question for you. Do you ever feel at times that the events of life seem random, out of control, and meaningless? Show of hands, anybody? Yeah. Just like, where did that come from? My goodness, God, you are in control. You love me. You are wise. This doesn't seem to... This is inconsistent with what I'm experiencing in my life. Came across an interesting story. just happened this last week. It was a blog by Mark Driscoll, pastor of Mars Hill, Seattle. He's doing a real marriage tour, and this is what he says. Last weekend, I had the great honor of teaching at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale in Florida as part of the real marriage tour. Over 3,000 people joined us, and in the most emotional moment of our time together was when the men stood to take a very powerful vow to love and lead their wives and children. The husbands then spent time praying over their wives in love as the sound of weeping women could be heard. It was powerful as many women saw their husbands become Christians and pray over them for the first time. One of those men who stood to vow and pray was a man named Mike. He and his wife, Elena had come down from Boston. They were sent by Genesis Church. The church generously had given away two fully paid trips for the couples from the church to attend the Real Marriage Tour event in Fort Lauderdale. This couple, though, didn't win, but Elena really wanted to attend. And out of love for his wife, Mike agreed. Elena was a maturing Christian, active in her church, leading a small group, and by all accounts, a loving, gracious, and wonderful woman. Mike was on his journey of faith, but when he stood to vow and pray, his lovely wife told him it was the happiest day of her life. <clears throat> they left the conference and returned back to their hotel very much in love and excited about their future together as she was also seven months pregnant with her first child, a boy. Mike and Elena went into the restroom and that's when tragedy struck. A car smashed into the restroom Elena was in, the restroom that Elena was in, and she and her baby were killed. The news of this tragic event has gone global and many have clicked to see Their wedding photo from some years prior now posted at Britain's Daily Mail. So this just happened just a week ago, just a week ago this weekend. It's a good time for us all to pray for Mike. His entire life has just gone upside down in an instant as he went from the best day of his bride's life to the worst day of his life. Lastly, this is a good reminder for us all, none of us knows when the last day of our life or the life of someone we love will be. 
There should be a sense of urgency for us to grow in friendship with Jesus and our spouse if we are married. Today is the day to give your life to Jesus if you are not yet a Christian. And today is the day to work things out with your spouse by God's grace. While I deeply grieve with and for Mike, I am so glad that the last day for his wife was the best day of her life. She was loved well by her husband and welcomed home by her Jesus. We are finishing up our teaching series by looking at three attributes that are a necessity for you to uh, not just know, but to experience in your life if you are going to endure hardship. And last week we talked about love. God is infinite in love. Today we're talking about his wisdom. He's perfect in love. He's infinite in wisdom. And the next week we, we wrap up our teaching series on his power. He's unlimited in power. And this is really how it works in our life. I must believe, if I'm going to endure the hardships of life, that in his perfect love, he wants the very best for me. In his infinite wisdom, he knows what is best for me, and in his unlimited power, he can certainly pull it off. He can do it, and he will do what is best for me. What that is called is the providence of God. Anybody ever hear that term or understand what the providence of God doctrine is? It's a pretty powerful doctrine. It's an important doctrine for us to understand. And in fact, Jerry Bridges says this, God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. This is why it's so critical that we understand this, is that if there is one maverick molecule on this planet Earth, then you can't trust God. He may be loving, he may be wise, but if he's not sovereign, if he's not in control of what goes down in our life, then we can't can't trust him. Now, my understanding of God is that he is infinite, in wisdom, perfect in love, and unlimited in his power, and he is working in our behalf, and there is not any maverick molecules on this planet Earth. He is in control of everything. It's called his sovereignty. It's called his providential care, and, uh, and it's so necessary that, that I understand that because it makes all the difference in my life of how I'm going to respond to the circumstances of my life, and that's really the, the story that we're looking at here this, uh, this morning. Not the story, but the text. The text really talks about that, and we get a chance to kind of peer behind to see a little bit of what God is up to in our lives and what He's wanting to do in our lives. Because my peace in the midst of, 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 of panic and persecution and problems is really my confidence in God's loving, wise control. You've heard me say that many times before. I mean, can you trust God? Absolutely. I believe that he's trustworthy. And uh, peace is confidence in God's loving, wise control. The counterfeit of this uh, peace would be, would be uh, just indifference, uh, apathy, not caring, or maybe medicating the pain and the difficulty. And oftentimes that's why we do. We can't deal with reality, so we try to medicate it. God, are you really in control? Are you, are you really working things out for my good? And the opposite of this peace would be anxiety and worry that somehow, God, you messed up. God, you're not going to get it right. And so it creates this this concern within us. And so that's where we're headed with this study. And I'm thankful that, uh, that God, when bad things happen to us, listen to me, uh, he's not pacing the corridors of heaven, wringing his hands uh, stressing out, wondering, oh, what, are, what am I going to do next? What, what's happening here? How am I going to work this out? He's not doing that. He is in control. He is sovereign. And so I'm going to pray a prayer I think that will be helpful for us. I was really quite shocked this morning that I had. Uh, in fact, would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment and let's pray. And I, I want you to, maybe you're still reeling from some events that have happened in your life. How many here this morning are still reeling from events that maybe have happened in your life, maybe in, way in the past or maybe just recently that you're still struggling with. You're just trying to make heads or tails out of this. Show of hands. Okay, quite a number of people. I know that you've experienced tragedy and difficulty and, 
and different things like that. I was shocked to see just as many in the first service. And so here's my prayer. I'm going to pray a couple verses that I think will help us and kind of set us up as we head into this study. And I know that this is really going to be uh, of great benefit to us this morning. So let's pray. God, thank you. You know our hearts. You know where we are. You know the struggle. You know the, the questions that bounce around in our, in our hearts, our minds, our lives. So, Father God, oh, the depth of your riches and wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments and how unfathomable your ways, as it tells us in Romans eleven thirty three. Even as it says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. And your thoughts than our thoughts. God, to know you is life. To serve you is freedom. To praise you is our soul's deepest joy. So God, we pray through the study of your word, help us to have a greater endurance in hardship as we learn to trust you with all of our hearts and not lean upon our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you Acknowledge more and more your providential, constant care for and absolute rule over all your creation for your glory and our personal good. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at our text. So let me set this up. So anytime we read a text, it's always important to do a little bit of a cultural, historical on this. Uh, Hebrews, written to Hebrew Christians, they're Jewish Christians, Christian uh, Jews that have converted to Christianity, and they are suffering big time. There's a lot of suffering going on in their life. They live in the big city, urban, first century Christians who are suffering, and here's what they're wondering. Here's the big question on their mind, and he's going to answer it, and he answers it by, throughout the whole book, but specifically, we're going to look here in the 12th chapter that helps us with our own suffering. They're wondering, if God loves us, why is life so hard? And so, as I stated, he answers it throughout this whole book. We're going to look at just a section, chapter 12. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to read it completely through. I'm going to kind of give you some definitions as we work through it, and then kind of on the front end of it, and then we'll kind of wrap it up, and then we'll dive into our notes here. But this is how it goes down. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, stop there just for a minute. Didn't get very far, did we? Here we go. Who is he talking about here? What's the, who's the great crowd or cloud of witnesses? Or crowd? He's talking about the 11th chapter of Hebrews, just where they left. Anybody know what the 11th chapter of Hebrews is? What, what chapter is that called? It's the faith, yeah, the hall of faith. It's the faith chapter. So this is what he's saying. He's, going, he's gone through and talked about all these different people that have had this amazing faith. They put their faith, they put their trust in God. Some were able to find great success. Others went through major persecution. So make sure when you read through that chapter, you read completely through the chapter. Because as you get towards the end of the chapter, you see those that are being sawn in two, thrown to the lions, a lot of things like that. But they demonstrated amazing faith. So he's saying, hey, since we're surrounded by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Stop there just for a minute. So he says, first of all, the weights... And he makes a distinction between weight and sin. So obviously there's things that can weigh us down and keep us from running the race, using that as a metaphor for the Christian life. So there are things that can weigh us down, keeping us from, from running the race with endurance. But there's also sin. He, he distinguishes that from sin. So there's things that we just get involved in that we have no business probably getting involved in. It's not sin, but they weigh us down. But then there's sin, the things where we're actually missing the mark and we're living outside of God's plan for our lives. He says, so let's get rid of this stuff in our life that clings so closely so it hinders our ability to run so that we can run with endurance. This word endurance is used throughout this text too. And so this is what he's trying to get them to do. He's wanting them not to give up. Have you ever felt like giving up? Sure you have. They're feeling like giving up. I mean, this suffering is so overwhelming, they want to quit. He's saying, man, I want you to endure. Now, the word endurance means not to swerve from your purpose and passion for Christ. It just means not to swerve, but actually the Greek word means to hyperstand. So the idea here is not just kind of barely hanging on, but it has that idea of not just surviving, but thriving, thriving. 
Man, you are strong in the midst of difficulty. I want you to, to have this endurance in your life. How are we going to get that? Once we rid ourselves of these things that cling so closely, keep us from this endurance so that we can run this race set before us. Notice what he says in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Stop there just for a minute. The, the word looking. Some of your translations say what? Anybody? Fix. It says fix your eyes. So some, some, one of the translations that I actually memorized that that verse in was fix your eyes on Jesus. The word uh, looking actually means that, fix. It means to turn your eyes away from other things. So quit focusing on your problems. Quit focusing on the things of this world. Quit focusing on the things that you're using to medicate or sedate you to help you to cope. He's saying, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter. So Fix it. And, the, and the idea there is to make, fill your heart with the beauty and the value of who he is and what he's done for you. That's the idea. What he's wanting to do here is he's wanting to stir up appetite within them for Christ that is stronger than all other appetites. What he's wanting to do is to provoke a consuming experience with Christ that reduces all other experiences to just trivial pursuit in comparison. So when he's saying that, that's what he's saying. Man, fix your eyes. Be captivated by him. Let your heart be ravished by his glory and beauty. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, there's that word again, endured the cross, despising the shame. The word despising means to think little or nothing of. In other words, when he faced the cross, because of the joy set before him, what was the joy? The joy was, was to show us the beauty and the glory, uh, his glory through the cross, through what he did for us so that we could find our deepest joy in him. That was, that was his joy. That we would find him to be everything that we need. That he is more than enough. So that was the joy. And he said, Ah, that was nothing compared to what I was able to do for you. In essence, that's what he's saying. He says, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that means? At the right hand of God? He rules. There's not one maverick molecule on this planet Earth. He's not pacing the corridors of heaven, wringing his hands. He rules. God is in control. He is sovereign. You can trust his loving, wise control of your life. Then he goes on. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. So it's like, man, look what he did for you. Look what he did for you. Do you see that? You see what he went through for you. Do you see how much he loves you? I mean, and that's what I meant. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, I mean, you're captivated by his glory and his beauty. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. He did this for me. So that, that begins to stir within you, to infuse you with, with energy and motivation. And the hostility against himself so that you may not grow. Now, this is the opposite of endurance. These two words. You might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Weary means to be sick. Faint-hearted means to just give up. I am sick, I just feel like giving up. I can't handle the pain, I can't handle the suffering anymore. And then he goes on, verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Hey, you haven't died yet. <laughs> That's not nice. It almost seems as though, you know, it's kind of like, ah, you haven't really, you know, you haven't shed any blood yet. You haven't died. Of course, we know that as believers, that, that might not be so bad. We'll go to be with the Lord. And then he goes on, he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then listen to these tender words. He's quoting scripture here, third chapter of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved. The word reproved uh, means to bring to light or to expose or to find fault. And what he's saying is that, and, and the, the word discipline, we'll get to that in a minute, but he uses the word discipline about nine times, and we'll talk about what that means. But he's saying God's discipline reproves us. In other words, it reveals 
It reveals our character flaws, and it reveals our sins so that God can bring... God always, when he points things out to us, it's not to rub our nose in those things, but to bring healing, health, and wholeness to us. He loves us. So he reveals these things to us because he wants, wants to bring healing to our lives and wholeness. Then he goes on, he says, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. If you're not being disciplined, if you're not going through hard times, if there aren't some difficulties in your life then you're not really being loved by God because God disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The word chastisement means to scourge. It means to train by affliction. So he's saying when you go through difficulties, this is part of the discipline of the Lord. Verse 7, he says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. In fact, the NIV puts it this way, endure hardship is discipline. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all hardship is a form of discipline. God's wanting to develop you. He's not trying to destroy you. He wants to develop you. He's wanting to grow you. We'll talk more about that as we work through this. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment. Notice what it says there, his wholeness. So he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his, share his holiness or wholeness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Another key word there. We'll get back to that. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness, you guys know what bitterness is? You guys know what bitterness is? Bitterness is anger turned inward, which ultimately will lead to depression. So this is bitterness. I'm angry at God, and you don't work through that anger. I'm angry at what this person did to me. And you don't work through that and unload that through, through forgiveness, letting that go. It becomes bitterness. We... We, we don't obtain the grace of God. We miss out on the grace of God, which is God's empowering presence in our life, enabling us to be what he wants us to be, to do what he wants us to do, his, his unmerited favor, and it springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? So here's where we're going with this. Three things, three metaphors that we're looking at. This text doesn't mention wisdom, but it applies it with three different interrelated metaphors. One is obvious. The other two are somewhat subtle. We'll, we'll dig out of the text. Here's where we're going. God has the wisdom of a coach to make you strong. God has the wisdom of a father to make you mature. God has the wisdom of a doctor to make you healthy. Let's start with the first one here. God has the wisdom of a coach to make you strong. Verse 11, if you still have your Bibles, keep your Bibles on because I'm going to keep referring back to this text. It says trained. I pointed that out. And he says to those who have been trained by it. But later it yields. So for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The word trained in the Greek means to exercise naked. What do you think of that? To exercise naked. Some of you just woke up right then when I said that. <laughs> to exercise naked. So this is what I was thinking. We're going to start a new exercise group in the church here. And uh, No, I'm kidding, obviously. But that's what it actually says. It says to exercise naked or to exercise vigorously. And I started thinking, that is really weird. I just thought, that's really strange. Why would, why would that, the Greek word be to exercise naked? And if, you, if you're familiar with, they had something that was very similar to the Olympic Games. And if you saw any of the athletes, that, they would exercise, they would perform 
pretty stripped down. For the most part, almost naked. Maybe, maybe a couple leaves in the appropriate places for the most part. But, but they were naked. I mean, not unlike when you look at our athletes, they're pretty stripped down. Now they've got, uh, they have, a, a, what do you call it, equipment? It's not equipment, but suits that are just so skin tight and so hardly nothing to them. And I, and I think that's the point. And I think what this, this word trained, the, the word trained actually is where we get our word gym or gymnastics. And uh, it, goes, it, it goes in line with the first verse of what we read. Did you notice that? It says, so let us lay aside every weight. So it's almost like saying, hey, get naked spiritually is what he's saying. You want to endure hard times? Get rid of the weights in your life that drag you down. What are those things that are impeding your, your progress and your, your relationship with God, your growth in him? Now, they're not, they might not be sin, but, but they're, they're keeping you from experiencing the beauty and the glory of who Christ is. Now, he also talks about sin. So that's, that's a little bit of the idea that he's, he's getting at. If you're going to um, endure hardship, we've got to know that God has the wisdom of a coach to make you strong. We get it from that word trained. And so really spiritually, we need to strip the things out of our life that are interfering with us in our relationship with God. Now, here's, here's a couple points under that. Shock and self-pity are the results of seeing God as a concierge rather than a coach. Turn to the person next to you and say, what is this concierge? You got to say it just like that. I had somebody come up and give me a lesson afterwards. They had taken French, and it is a French word, but you go concierge. You have to do the G at the end kind of thing. So turn to the person next to you. You've got to kind of pronounce it right, but ask them, what is a concierge? Real quick, do that. Anybody know what a concierge? It's a, it's a very sophisticated word for gopher. I wouldn't know because we don't go to these uh, hotels where they have these uh, kind of concierges. I'm kidding. Actually, have been. But, it's, uh, but, but shock and self-pity are the results of seeing God as a concierge rather than a coach. It's French, which means make arrangements or run errands, literally, is what the word means. So think about this just for a minute. If you're approaching God, let's just say you call the, you call the, the desk, the front desk, and you ask them to send you a concierge because you're going to make some arrangements, you're going to go on a tour or whatever, and they send you a coach. Would there be a little confusion? You, you come to the door with a coffee and a donut, and he looks at you like, hey, get that car, get, get that out of your hands. Come on, what's going on? You're, we're supposed to work out. So, I mean, they would create this shock and self-pity are the results of seeing God as a concierge rather than a coach. Concierge is about comfort and convenience. A coach is about what? discomfort and challenging us. Is that not true? So if you have shock and self-pity in your life, it's because you don't understand what God's role is in your life. It takes us to the next point in your notes. Faith will not get strong unless it is exercised strategic to its needs. So if I were to ask you, where are your needs currently? Where are your strengths and weaknesses as it relates to you spiritually? You actually should kind of have a handle on that because that's where God is specifically probably speaking to you and wanting to bring strength to your life in those areas. See, a coach sizes you up and brings discomfort into your life adapted to your weaknesses in order to strengthen your weaknesses. Is that not true? I used to, uh, Nancy and I, when we lived over here off of Mauna Loa, I used to work out with the next door neighbor, and he had a free, uh, free weights, big weights. And I always wondered why he never wore shorts. I mean, he just had this massive upper body, just really would push a lot of weight, and I'd have to spot him, which is all I could do to get, you know, what he was benching, until I saw him in his shorts, and he had bird legs. He never worked out his legs. It was really interesting, but he had this massive upper body, but his legs were just little, little twigs. And it was just, it was almost laughable. Actually, it was like, woohoo. Dude, look at your legs. Uh, I didn't ever say that because I thought that he could probably still take me. But, uh, but, it was, but it was just interesting. And, you know, if there was a coach working this guy, I'd say, dude, you need to do a little less on the upper body and let's start working your legs out. And that's what God does for us. 
So where is he talking to you? Where is he speaking to you? What are your areas of your life that you're really needing to, to grow and mature? How many want to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of your life? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh, my goodness, those are wonderful. And and you know how God's going to develop those within your life? How is he going to bring more love to your life? He's going to put you around people that are hard to love. He is. This sounds crazy. He's going to put you around. So if you want to experience more joy or peace or even patience in your life, he's going to allow circumstances in your life to go haywire. Because it's in the midst of that, that's when we cry out to God. He begins to supernatural work in our life and he begins to develop those characteristics in our life that we so desperately need. Because he's a coach. He loves us. He's wanting us, he's wanting us to flourish. He's wanting to bring wholeness to us. In fact, it says James 1, 2 through 4, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, trials of all kinds, because you know this, that the trying of your faith produces patience, perseverance, so let Patience have its perfect work in you so that you might be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. So you can grow. In other words, you should say, wow, God, it must be working in my life. Look at these people that he's got around me right now. They really irritate me to death. (laughs) And you ought to be saying, praise God, God, I know you're wanting to do something supernatural in my life. What do we typically do? We go into circumstance enhancement. We run from, we go to a small group and then they start, you know, they start asking us real hard questions and it kind of exposes us and so, oh, I don't like that. So we run from that small group only to another group for them to do the same thing. And after a while, can't find a group where I can really fit in. And it's not really that. It's more about God's wanting to do a work in your life and he's wanting to pinpoint some things in your life where you need to get strong in. Faith will not get strong unless it is exercised strategic to its needs And then the next point, healthy routine of diet, exercise, and rest spiritually is a necessity. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. If you're going to endure hardship, you've got to have a a healthy routine. So let me ask you, how is your steady diet of Bible and prayer, spending time with God and in prayer, and small group participation? That would be your diet. And then exercise. Are you involved in ministry? Are you, what you take in, are you giving out? So others, are you involved in ministry? And then are you taking out time to rest? Spiritually. I'm not just saying you just veg out and watch 100 movies, you know, on your day off. I mean, sometimes that can be really cool. But what, you know, this is Sabbath rest for you, you guys. It's supposed to be. Not for me. This is my work day. But my Sabbath rest is typically on Friday. But my wife and I didn't have a Sabbath rest this Friday. Because we're on our fourth day now that we're watching our grandsons. Now, I told you last week I had five grandsons. I actually only have four. <laughs> you guys remember that? Okay, so I, I miscounted, okay? Maybe I was just hoping for another one. But I got four grandsons. Maybe I was wanting them to have another one or something like that. But we were watching three of them. They're all below the age of five. And I am wrung out. I'm exhausted. Now, my wife's a trooper. She's pretty tough, but I'm sleep-deprived. I've had like two or three nights without sleep with these kids, and uh, so we didn't take a Sabbath, so, but that's just that's life. I'll, I'll take my Sabbath this next week, but this is what you need to know. Here's what my Sabbath is. My Sabbath is, is really focusing in on God. I do those things that help me to get a sense of his presence in my life and to see his beauty and his glory. Do you do that? That's, that's rest. When you go on vacation... Do you do, do vacation in such a way, man, you want to have an encounter with God, you want to have an experience with him that makes all other experiences in life look like trivial pursuit? You can. That's, that's the Christian experience. And so that's important. Listen to what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians. That was one of the cross-references that I put down there. Uh, he says, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So he's kind of referring to this idea, giving us this whole idea of the Christian life as a race. So run that you may obtain it, the prize. In other words, give it your best. Do all that you can. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. This is for real. This is life or death. This is really important. But I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, God has the wisdom of a coach to make you strong. Here's the next point. God has the wisdom of a father to make you mature. 
And as I stated, the word discipline is used nine times in these 15 verses. The Greek word is paiduo, where we get our word pediatrics, and it literally means the whole training and education of children. Let me give you the next point on your notes so that you can understand this. So it's, it, it means that he's treating us as children, and he's wanting our whole training and education. That's what that word means, discipline. So, here's the next point. Everything that comes into your life is lovingly father-filtered. So, that's, you've you got to understand that. You've got to begin to embrace that. That everything that comes into your life is lovingly father-filtered. And once you fill in the blank, look up here. This is what you need to know. There has never, ever, ever been a father, a parent, a mom on this planet Earth or any any that you've ever come in contact with, biological, spiritual, that has ever loved you like your Father in heaven loves you and wants your flourishing. Never, ever. He has your best interest at heart. Listen, he gave his son on the cross for you. I mean, he, he went all out for you. And if he took care of your worst problem, he will take care of all your other problems. He wants you to flourish. That's his heart for you. I know as a, as a, uh, husband, as a father, as a grandfather, I want my kids, I want my grandkids to flourish. I want the very best for them. But that doesn't even come close to what my father in heaven, my daddy, wants for me and wants for you. And it's important that you live in the reality of that. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, another one of the cross-references I put there. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He's, he's inviting us. He's saying, come on. Come to me. I love you. Ask. And, and literally it means keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. And he says, you're not perfect. How much more does your Father in heaven love to give good gifts to you? You have a daddy in heaven that just thinks the world of you. He loves you. He's madly in love with you. See, if you don't have that kind of bouncing around in your heart and mind, you're going to immediately look at the circumstances of your life and go, oh my goodness, you don't love me. No, he does love you. You need to have that as your your worldview and how you filter everything in your life. It's not the events of life, it's how you see the events of life. And you've got to see them in light of what the Bible teaches. It's not the events of life that determine how you think and feel. It's how you see the events of life. It's your, it's your biblical worldview. And so his heart is bound up with your complete flourishing. And, and I believe that this is the distinguishing mark between uh, suffering Christians from non-Christians who are suffering, and that is the confidence that our suffering comes through the loving, wise control of our Father, and our suffering has meaning and purpose in His eternal plan. That's why we most often quoted verses, you hear me say Romans 8.28. You guys know what Romans 8.28 is, don't you? Romans 8.28, in fact, write that down. If you don't know that, write that down, Romans 8.28. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, and then another one is Genesis 50.20. You've you got to read both of those together. Those are great verses. This, uh, 50.20 is where you've got Joseph. There's, there's a lesson in providence, how God can take a guy from the, from the pit to the palace, and then he's looking in the eyes of his perpetrators, of his, the guys that abused him, he looks in their eyes and says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Oh, that, was, that was a, in hindsight, you know, certainly, 50, you know, 50, I call it 50-20 perspective. And uh, it, it, those are amazing. And so what happens, the more I live in this, this relieves me of anxiety. I don't have this... This paranoia, this fatalistic, like, oh, what's going to happen next, God? What are you going to bring into my life? Oh. No, I just, I'm, you can chill out. You can relax. You can rest. You, can, you don't have to have anxiety. God, you're in control. You're my daddy. You love me. You're going to take care of me. And whatever I go through, you're going to give me exactly what I need to get through that. You are more than enough. In fact, you are better than life. I'm so glad you're in my life. Oh, I rest in you. See, that's trust. So it relieves you of anxiety. It frees you from explanation. 
You don't have to go around and try to explain because you're not going to be able to understand it anyway. You don't have to try to put all the puzzle pieces together. You just know that he's going to take care of you. But it also gives you confidence in prayer. Well, why, you know, if God's sovereign, why should we pray? You can pray because he is sovereign. He is in control. If he's not in control, you might as well forget prayer. It tells us in uh, James 4.4, 4, we have not because we ask not. So what that tells us is that a lot of times we go without when our daddy's wanting to give us if we would come to him and ask. It also tells us in the fifth chapter of that same book, James, the 16th verse, it says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Why? Because he's in control. And so it's pretty amazing. Here's the next uh, point on your notes. He disciplines us for our good so that we can share in his wholeness. Actually, it says, that verse 10 says holiness, but that's what he's saying. Man, he wants our completeness. He wants our contentment. He wants our courage to be courageous no matter what we're facing, our confidence, our compassion. How does he do that? Verse 11 so that's, I, that's verse 10. He does it through verse 11. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. So he does it through pain. That's what he's saying. And then we go back to verse 6. Remember the word chastisement in verse 6, if you have your Bibles open? He says, and chastises every son whom he receives. That word means to scourge, training by affliction. So through pain. How many, have, how many parents have found this to be true? I just found this to be true with my kids now that they're grown and gone. Uh, don't have to deal with it, but now I have to deal with my grandkids. And, um, and so uh, how many, you know, with the three little boys, they're Ryan and Aaron's little guys, uh, I've noticed this. How, how many parents have noticed this, that some kids need just a little bit more affliction than the others? Huh? Because one needs a little bit more. You just kind of tailor make it to them because you love them so much. So you kind of make it for them. For instance, I mean, their little dude, if you ever see their little dude, he's the most content guy in the world. You know, Griffin, just kind of chilling out. Hey, dude, you know, what's going on? He's just a little guy. Give me my bottle. Everything's cool. If you want to hang on to me, that's cool too. And then you got the oldest one that you got to lean on him a little bit more. A little more affliction. You know, we had to, he was... You know, he likes to tackle his other, you know, two little brothers, and he hurts them. He tackles them hard. He plays hard. And so I had to put him in a timeout chair, you know, uh, yesterday, and it was just like, oh, that was overwhelming to him. It was so painful. <laughs> but he needed that. And he needed Grandpa to come over and grab him by the face and say, hey, dude, I love you, but you can't do that. You're going to hurt your brothers. And so kind of walk him through that whole process. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He helps us with this idea. So... So God, our Father, our Daddy, He disciplines us for our good so that we can share in His wholeness. C.S. Lewis says, we're not doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Isn't that the truth? Tim Keller puts it this way. Sometimes God seems to be killing us when He's actually saving us. How often have you heard people say this? I grew closest to God when my life was free from pain and suffering. Never. You have never heard anybody say that. I have never heard anybody say that. No, this is what I've heard people say. I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy what I just went through, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because of what I have in him. Time and time again. I have a sense of his glory and his beauty unlike ever before. No pain would be too great to endure if it brought us to the glory of God. And if you're going, I don't know about that, you haven't seen the glory of God. You get a glimpse of the glory of God, game over. Game over. You want him, you want to know him, you want to make him known, you want to make your life all about him. Because nothing will bring you greater joy and pleasure than that. Here's the next one. As children, don't expect to understand everything, but remember, it's not payback. What do I mean by that? Because Christ has paid in full for our sin debt. So this is not retribution. God's not saying, okay, you were mean and nasty, and now you're going to have to pay me back for all the sins that you've... It's already been paid in full on the cross. (laughs) 
So if you're a child of God, he's not coming after you, you know, with discipline and suffering and things like that because he's trying to get payment out of you. It's already been paid. He's not going to get double payment. So this is meant to develop you. He loves you. You can rest in that. And that's important to keep in mind. As children, don't expect to understand everything, but remember, it's not payback. All children think that their discipline is too hard, unfair, and taking too long, just as my little grandson did yesterday. This is unfair. You're unfair. You're mean. That's what he said to me. This is taking too long. He takes after his grandma's side of the family. I'm kidding. But uh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Never has a child said to their parent, thank you for grounding me from video games for two weeks. I was feeling a little out of control, neglecting my homework, slipping in my grade point average, and not getting enough physical fitness. Thank you, mom and dad. No, never. That's never happened. Anybody ever see a kid say that? Anybody? If they do, then they're trying to pull a fast one on you. (laughs) They're playing you, man. I've never seen a kid ever do that. They're playing you. No, for every one of us. And we're children. We're the same way. This is unfair. This is taking too long. This is too hard. Let me ask you this. What's the wisdom, the knowledge wisdom gap between, I'll use my grandson, Braden, five years old, and and me, 35 years old. What's the... Okay. That would be weird, isn't it? Because he's my grandson. I guess. Maybe not. I didn't do the math. Okay, I'm 55. And so what's the, what's the knowledge wisdom gap between a 5-year-old and a 55-year-old? My wife would say, not much, if it's you. Um, but, um, I mean, it, it, it's a lot, isn't it? It's vast. At times, maybe not much. But, uh, but for the most part, you know, I have an understanding of things that he doesn't understand. Now, let me ask you this. What's the knowledge wisdom gap between me, 55-year-old, and God? Here's what it is. Write this down. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. If you think you're smarter than God, you never, ever, 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 ever will be. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. This is God speaking to us. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. In other words, there's a major gap. What's the gap between, between our ways and God's ways, our thoughts and God's thoughts? As high as the heavens are above the earth, is the gap between his ways and his thoughts from our ways and thoughts. How high up is that? Anybody measure lately? It's infinite. What the Bible is saying, you will never be able to comprehend an incomprehensible God. And his ways are beyond all of that. And this is what's so wonderful about it. That he has this amazing ability If he can take from his son and redeem all of mankind and take a a crucifixion and turn it into a resurrection and bring life to us, he can take our sorry lives, the, the pathetic things that we've done in our life, and take our messes and turn them into masterpieces. If we just give him our lives, we turn our lives over to him. Now, Let's move on to the next point, but before I do that, let me preface it by saying this. If you grew up in a home with abuse, or at the least, you had a distant, detached, earthly father, your tendency will be to transfer that perspective to your heavenly father, and you're going to need some time for healing. Because when I talk about daddy or father, immediately, many times people go, oh, there's this cringing. And so God, God wants, he loves you, he wants to redefine that for you. He's our heavenly father, he's our perfect father. So there needs to be healing, and it takes us to the next point. God has the wisdom of a doctor to make you healthy. And we get this in verses 12 through 13. Let me read through those. He says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, so you get the idea that you're wounded. So what is lame, you've been wounded, may not be put out of joint. By the way, you try to run on a, on a wounded foot or leg, it's going to get snap. It's going to be pulled out of joint. But rather, he uses this word, be healed. And so I took that, and this is what it means. Healed means to cure, heal, to make whole. 
Luke 5, 31 through 32 says that Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And what does that mean? Does that mean that there's actually healthy people on this earth? No, 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 it doesn't mean that at all, because actually everybody's sick. But what was he saying? He was saying that he came for those that begin to recognize their sickness, that they are sick. And this is what I love about Christianity. One of the reasons why I'm a Christian is one of the, is for not this very reason, but one of many reasons, is that when you look at all the major cults and religions of our world today, they could be categorized like this. This is how they basically would go. The good are in, the bad are out. If you live up to our standard, you're one of us. If not, you're gone. Christianity is completely opposite of that. This is what Christianity is. Christianity says, says this, the humble are in, the proud are out. Isn't that amazing? So, so what do you need to become a Christian? All you need is need. All you need is to recognize you're sick. And if while I've been talking here, if you've got the slightest bit of inkling within your heart that says, oh my goodness, I would like to know this God. I want to know him. God's working in your life. We'll talk more about it next week. But he's working. He's stirring. He's drawing your heart. You're recognizing your need for him. You begin to call out to him. Oh God, I need you. I need, I need you, God. I trust in you. I look to you. God's working. And you come to him. He's with open arms. He's drawing you close. He loves you. He will bring healing to you. But all you got to do is admit, I'm sick. I'm sick. Things aren't going well. Things, I don't know, I don't know how this is all going. Quit medicating. Quit sedating yourself. Run to him. Run into his arms. Let him embrace you and love you and bring healing to you. Psalm 147.3 says this, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. No matter what has happened in your life, he will heal you. He loves you. He has cures, comforts, courage for every need, every occasion, every moment of your life. Grace, God's grace cannot be exhausted and it cannot be earned. I love what J.I. Packer says. You will never need more than God can supply So here's a few points. Gratefully submit to his plan. This is how you know you're really being healed up. When you, no matter what goes down in your life, you gratefully submit to his plan and unconditionally obey his commands. When my wife had our first uh, child, uh, that little booger wouldn't come out. She she couldn't deliver the baby and uh, she was in labor for 12 hours and so the doctor had to perform a C-section. And so I was in the the room. Those are pretty vicious. You know, cut open the the gut and bring out the baby. And so what, what I found interesting is that what do you think that they had her do right after they'd given her a C-section? They came into her room just kind of shortly after. She kind of recovered a little bit, but it was really quick. They came in there and says, they said, okay, let's go. Get up. We're going to do laps. How many have ever gone into surgery and they had you up and about really quick, really quick? That doctor's a quack. I can't believe that they would have me do that. I mean, I was kind of shocked. I was like, wow, she just she had her gut cut open. That's pretty severe. <laughs> wow. And, and, and then they, had her, they had her, brought her in the room, and the nurse came in there and said, okay, you need to cough. And Nancy would go, ah. She'd go, no, you need to cough a little bit more like that. Ah, it hurts. She'd go, no, you have to cough much more than that because you're going to get pneumonia in your lungs. You've got to have to start breathing a little bit. But it really hurts. I know. Because you're kind of splitting yourself. And, and so they, what would they do? These doctors, these nurses would push you. Why? For your good. See, that's the, that's the idea here. Gratefully submit to his plan, unconditionally obey his commands. He loves you. Sometimes you've got to get up and keep moving. Here's the next one. Learn to live by faith and not by sight. Chapter 11 is all about that. I mean, you see these that are just going through really great things. They're putting nations to flight through war, but then others are being killed. And in the midst of that, there's amazing, there's amazing faith happening. But here's what faith is. This is what you need to always keep in mind. Faith, faith is not merely an agreement with facts in the head, but it's an appetite for God and the heart that exceeds all other appetites. And that's what you see in, in the 11th chapter. So when you're living by faith, you're saying, I want God more than anything. No matter what goes down in my life, I'm going to live my life for him. Listen to what John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, listen to what he said. He said, everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. See, that's faith. That's living by faith and not by sight. 
Everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. What is he saying? God, you're sovereign. You're in control. I trust in your loving, wise control of my life. Next point, last one. Stay in touch with your spiritual vital signs. This is what I do. I look at my heart regularly, and I ask myself, is my heart for God getting bigger or smaller? Is my heart for people getting bigger and smaller? Oftentimes I can tell when my heart for God is not where it should be when I'm not as kind and loving to people. So if my heart begins to shrink towards people, I know that there's some kind of disconnection between God and I. And that's what I'm constantly looking for. But here's the bottom line. God wants to get you to the place where you are so spiritually strong, mature, and healthy that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you trust and treasure Christ above all. I'm going to show you a video here. This is, once again, this is a gut punch. But it's important for us to see this, and then we're going to sing a song and just... Just be thinking a little bit about what you've gone through. And and you need to know that God is here this morning. He loves you. He's here to meet you right there at your point of need. So open your heart to him. Watch this. It was January 16th of 1993. In Boston, it snows a lot. And so you're shoveling your driveway constantly. We had gone to the uh, supermarket that morning. And while we were at the supermarket, it was actually snowing. So I got home kind of irritated and said, uh, honey, why don't you park the car out in the street here? Uh, I'll just uh, clean off the driveway. And our two kids were with us, uh, our son, uh, three years old, and our daughter, Lauren, who was 18 months old. I jumped out of the car, got a shovel, the kids jumped out with me, and I asked my wife to move the car to to an easier spot for us to clean out the driveway, and she did, and she said, make sure you keep an eye on the kids. And my son immediately went with her into the car, and my daughter was with me uh, for a few moments. Uh, but what I hadn't realized was that she actually wanted to be in the car also. And so as my daughter was running to the car, she uh, was uh, trapped under the front wheel of the car. There was a brief uh, scream of pain, and, uh, and I immediately ran out. And uh, to any parent's horror, uh, they see their uh, 18-month-old daughter under the front wheel of a 2,000-pound car was overwhelming. She died instantly, as we found out later. Um, I actually took the uh, last breath that she ever breathed on this earth out of her lungs, and we um, drove to the emergency room at the hospital, hoping and uh, praying that things might be different, but they weren't. And um, within an hour or so, they had pronounced her uh, dead. I was given a Bible, my very first Bible, on Christmas three weeks before uh, the accident. And that Bible was to become the thing that kept me alive. There were drugs and uh, various things that people gave us to try to calm us down during this difficult few weeks, but it was actually holding the Bible and reading it was the thing that actually comforted me the most. Um, I actually slept with my Bible for about nine months every night. What I was struggling for was the reality of Jesus, the reality of somebody who knew suffering, who was going to be there, who uh, had experienced this himself. I spent a lot of time actually in cemeteries just walking around and uh, found some comfort there. I could oftentimes connect more closely with pain there because I knew that everybody there had a story and that people uh, had come and grieved there. It gave me a clarity that Jesus works powerfully in places where people are hurting. And so I found great comfort to just be quiet and listen to him there. And so um, sometimes I would just go around and read the, uh, the, the stone markers and um, uh, pray for the various families. And it actually turned from, a, from an internal thing where I was trying to get uh, healing and hope to a place where I would actually intercede for others. And that was a shift that occurred where God began to do a work that uh, my healing was going to be uh, more complete in helping others. We had five neighbors who lived next to us, directly next to us, when the accident happened. And within five years, three whole families of those households came to know Christ personally. And when I think back on where we were and how God used that, I said, that doesn't make it all right. That doesn't make it good. That doesn't make my pain go away. But it does tell me that God is bringing some good out of this, that there'll be some eternal good that comes out of her life and death.
The joy is, is knowing that this is just temporary, that there's something much more. The eternal perspective changes things because it takes the focus off of my experience now and puts it in a different level, a different realm. The Bible says uh, heaven will be a place where there's no more tears or pain or crying or death. Okay, so if, if that's true, then the hope is, is that these things will be resolved and that, that we'll understand or we'll have more clarity that we don't have now. greatest hope is, is that one day I'll walk with her in heaven. She'll be perfect. And I'll be full of joy. And this life will have made a lot more sense. Because sometimes it doesn't. But I have that hope. <laughs> 